Well, good to see you all today, and uh, we are excited to begin this series in the letter, the second letter of Paul, or actually, if you were listening last Sunday, the fourth letter of Paul, probably, to the church at Corinth, but we call it 2 Corinthians, and uh, last week we did an overview on uh, the letter itself, and now we're going to jump in to verses 1 through 11 here, kind of the opening, uh, the greeting, the introduction to the letter. The title of my message today is, On Him We Have Set Our Hope. On Him We Have Set Our Hope. And I want to look at that hope in three parts this morning. We want to first look at a divine hope in verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to look at, uh, secondly, the unshaken hope that we see in verses 3 through 7. And then finally, we want to see a resurrection hope in verses 8 through 11. So that's the direction that we're heading. And let's just go ahead and jump right in to a divine hope, verses 1 and 2. So Paul opens this letter with what, uh, at first glance, appears to be kind of just a standard, typical greeting that is found in all of Paul's letters. Look at it again in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like a typical introduction to a letter of Paul. But if we take a little closer look, we'll see that Paul's making several very important points in the greeting, and we don't want to miss them from his particular circumstances in dealing with the Corinthians. First, Paul identifies himself here as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So in order to speak to the Corinthians with any kind of apostolic authority, Paul's reminding them that he's got credentials. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Remember, at this time, we're going to get into it later in 2 Corinthians, there were some self-appointed false apostles in Corinth who had been attacking Paul's reputation, who had been questioning his abilities to do his job. In fact, Paul mockingly calls them super apostles, uh, as you might remember. And we'll get to that as we get later into the letter. But uh, these super apostles here are attacking Paul, but we know that Paul's the genuine article. We can go back to Acts chapter 9, where Paul um, uh, had a revelation on his way to Damascus, a light shone from heaven. The risen Lord Jesus spoke to Paul himself out of that light and specifically appeared to him, specifically commissioned Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And since Jesus himself had appointed Paul to this office, he has a divine authority that is unlike any of the super apostles, any of these self-appointed pretenders who were troubling the church at Corinth. So that's one thing he says right up front. He doesn't say that in all of his letters. Second, Paul's greeting is loaded with some important doctrine. The Corinthians, now we know from 1 Corinthians, this was a troubled church. This was a sinful church. And despite their sins, despite their struggles, Paul identifies the Corinthians here as saints. People who are called by God. People who are set apart for God's purposes. Now, knowing what we know about the Corinthians, and we know a little bit about the Corinthians because we spent 
quite a bit of time going through 1 Corinthians in the last couple of years. But we would hardly think that the word saint would apply to them. However, like all other Christians, the Corinthians have been called by God in faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And so despite their sins, despite their struggles, they are set apart by God and for God. And you are saints too, brothers and sisters, if you are following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So you can call yourself saint if you like. Third, Paul speaks of grace and peace coming to the Corinthians from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. And that's important because not only is grace mentioned as coming from God, but Paul also assigns this role to Jesus as much as he does to the Father. So this is another way in which Paul is affirming the deity of the Lord Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God, is divine. And that was certainly under attack in this era. And and are you noticing something from our passage right from the start? Everything in these first two verses, everything is of God. Do you notice it? Paul is an apostle by the will of God. He's to the church of God. And he's taking the grace and peace of God to them. So this hope that Paul is about to speak of is only because of God. God made him an apostle. God made the Corinthians saints. And God is the one providing the grace and peace that will sustain them and help them to endure. It's a divine hope. It's from the Lord. It's all from the Lord. But secondly, notice that, number two, it's an unshaken hope. Verses 3 through 7. Paul does something kind of remarkable in in, in verse 3 in particular. He, He takes a number of phrases in this paragraph straight from the Jewish liturgy. So if you were to go to a first century synagogue where Paul might have attended, they would have a liturgy. Now we have... Uh, what most people would probably call a a free liturgy, where um, on a typical Sunday morning, you'll notice that things generally happen in the same order in our service. We'll have someone come up and do a call to worship. Uh, We'll have some songs. We'll have someone pray. Uh, We'll stand and read the scripture that's going to be preached. Uh, There will be preaching. There will be more prayer. Sometimes, like this morning, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. There's kind of an order. There's a form to our worship, to our liturgy. Well, in the Jewish culture, and in many other religious cultures even today, there are precise words that are written down and that are said every time people meet. And that was true in the Jewish synagogue. And one of the things that was always said in the Jewish synagogue liturgy was blessed be God blessed be God and what Paul does is he takes this phrase and he transforms it in several other phrases into Christian expressions so look at verse 3 Paul uses the standard opening line found in any synagogue but he tweaks it blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now the Jews 
aren't going to read that in their synagogues because they haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. But Paul uses their own language and adds the Lord Jesus to it. Notice he places Jesus right alongside the Father as the object of his blessing. Paul is blessing God. Next, Paul introduces the theme of comfort, using a word here that could also be translated encouragement. The comfort that Paul speaks of here is not a physical comfort. It's not like, uh, you know, when you've been working all day and you get home and you, you plop down on your favorite chair or you, you go lay down on the couch. This kind of comfort is uh, unique. In fact, this word comfort shows up ten times just in this little paragraph in verses 3 through 7. Uh, Here's a quote from uh, Murray Harris, a commentator. In the New Testament usage, the term comfort has three basic meanings. It can mean encouragement or exhortation, an appeal or request, or comfort and consolation. Throughout 2 Corinthians, the comfort Paul is depicting is a consolatory strengthening in the face of adversity that affords spiritual refreshment. It is much more than just verbal solace or an expression of sympathy. We're sorry you're going through this. While its source is always God, this comfort sometimes is mediated by fellow believers. Unquote. So Paul is speaking of the kind of comfort that sustains us in the trials of life. And this becomes clear in verse 4 when Paul says it's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now if you read that verse too fast, it becomes a little bit of a tongue twister. But if you, if, you, if you look at it in three different parts there, it makes sense. God comforts us in our affliction, that's one, so that we can comfort others in their affliction, that's two. And the comfort we use for others is the same comfort that we've received ourselves from God, right? That makes sense. This comfort is what encourages us when we are called by God to suffer or to endure affliction. The affliction here, the suffering that Paul speaks of, is not only uh, concerning the daily trials, the ups and downs of life that we all have. It's also a reference to the suffering that we encounter because of our faith in Jesus. Um, Another commentator, uh, Paul Barnett, wrote this, Paul had in mind in particular what he called troubles, or in the ESV, the word afflictions, in verse 4. The Greek word contains the idea of pressure. The pressure that he felt as a result of his ministry. That squeezing in on our soul. You ever felt that? I think we all have, haven't we? That's what Paul means when he says affliction or troubles or suffering here. Paul's point is that God will give us the comfort, the encouragement that we need to endure those times of squeezing, those times of pressure 
so that we won't quit, we won't give up, we won't drop out of the race, we will persevere to the end. Paul even tells us here why God comforts us in these trials, and we just read it, didn't we? So that we can comfort others when they go through the same difficult trials of life. Those of you who have lost loved ones, you know what to say to other people when death comes knocking on their door. And you know what to say better than those who haven't experienced it. Those who have survived cancer, you know what to say to someone who has just found out that they too have it. Those who have gone through job losses or times of poverty and have come back from the brink, come back from the edge, you know what to tell others who are struggling in those same areas. And yes, even us old parents who have done some really stupid things in our past, we can speak with a certain authority to our young whippersnappers and give counsel to them so that they can avoid making the same stupid mistakes that we did. Now that's one of the ways that God comforts us in the midst of our affliction through the support and the counsel of others who have gone through the same sorts of things. But there's even a better way that God comforts us than that. When Paul speaks of the affliction that we are sure to face in this life, and when he reminds us that God promises to comfort us, the Apostle Paul immediately directs our attention to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for, this is Paul speaking, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now, we share in Christ's sufferings. What does that mean? We share in Christ's sufferings. Does that mean that Christ's sufferings weren't enough? Not at all. To share in Christ's sufferings means that we are trusting in his suffering, the suffering he endured throughout his life, and especially as it culminated on the cross at Calvary. We are trusting on that. We are relying on that to save us from the guilt and power of our sin. No one has ever suffered more or ever carried a greater burden than the Lord Jesus did when he carried our sins on his own body. And the more that we look to Christ, Paul says, the more comfort we will find. And the greater our confidence will be to endure our trial, whatever trial it is that God's brought into our life. You remember what the author of Hebrews reminded us in in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And uh, Paul Barnett adds there, Paul is teaching that some kind of solidarity exists between Christ and His people. You ever think about that? 
when you suffer, it's as though Christ is suffering with you. And as Christ was comforted, because you are connected to Christ, because of your union with Christ, you can receive the comfort that Christ experienced. There's a solidarity between Christ and his people. He stands with us. You know, many times when we read the New Testament, we can see what Old Testament scriptures were in the mind of the biblical author when they were writing their inspired books in the New Testament. And and we can tell that sometimes by the quotes that they use, right? If they quote something from the Old Testament. And sometimes, if they don't quote, we can see it from the allusions that they make in their writing. And Paul doesn't quote any verses here in verses 3 through 7, but he is definitely pointing us back somewhere in the Old Testament. And we see that in particular by the repeated use of that word comfort. Because there's a specific place in the Old Testament where this is emphasized, and it's the prophet Isaiah. So if you want to turn back quickly to Isaiah, two places, and I'll have the verses on the screen as well, but turn back to two places in Isaiah's prophecy, and let's see why Paul is mentioning this in 2 Corinthians 1, what he has on his mind, what's underneath this inspired writing. Where is the Spirit taking his mind to as he writes 2 Corinthians 1? Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Now, if you know anything about uh, the, uh, the book of Isaiah, and if you've been here for any particular period of time, you do, because we preached through the book of Isaiah a few years ago, right? So Isaiah is kind of se- is sectioned into two big parts, right? Chapters 1 through 39, which are like the 39 books of the Old Testament. It represents the law. It represents sin. And then from chapter 40 through 66, the 27 chapters, similar to the 27 books of the New Testament, there's a turning point in Isaiah right here at Isaiah 40. It turns to hope. It turns to grace. It turns to the New Testament. It turns to things that are coming, the way that God is going to restore his people who are sin and in danger of judgment from the law. So here's how uh, Isaiah 40 verse 1 starts. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. At the very end of this section in Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 13, we also see references to comfort. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So in this wonderful second half of Isaiah, it starts and it ends with this emphasis on the comfort that is coming for God's people. So when Paul writes about the God of all comfort, back here in our text, in verse 3, This is the section of Scripture that Paul's thinking of. 
This is the second half of the prophecy of Isaiah. This is what's on his mind. It's the part that reflects the new covenant, the new testament, the hope that God will restore his people, forgive his people, come to his people. And bookending that whole section, as we saw, are these words about the comfort that God will send his people. But that comfort, that salvation will come through great suffering. And right in the middle of that section in Isaiah that deals with all of this wonderful comfort, right in the middle of Isaiah 40 to 66 is Isaiah 53. Right in the middle of that section. Not coincidental. Right in the middle. Isaiah 53, where the Father tells us how that comfort will be accomplished through a suffering servant who we now know as the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he said in 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, now listen to this, upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? And with his wounds we are what? Our comfort, our salvation, our peace, grace, forgiveness, mercy, throw in all the goods of the new covenant, only come because of a great suffering servant. And Paul brings that to mind back here in 2 Corinthians 1 as he refers to the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Corinthians to know. He wants us to know that there's no doubt suffering is going to come into your life. Sorry, But there's also no doubt that Jesus will be there to comfort us because He Himself has suffered in our place and He can empathize with us. That's why Paul can speak so confidently about Christians having hope. Look at verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul's hope is firm. It's unshaken. Paul uses here a banking term to refer to something that is secure and reliable, like a safe where you would put your valuables. And even though there's all kinds of stuff going on in the church at Corinth, just as there is in every church because there's sinners in every church, even though there's stuff going on, even though there's these super apostles that are causing trouble and causing havoc, Paul says, my hope for you, unshaken, firm, reliable, secure, The Corinthians share in Paul's sufferings. The the word share there is the Greek word koinonias. If you recognize that, it's because it means fellowship or partnership. It, It refers to those who share in a profound union. 
you know, we're going to do that in just a little bit. We're going to go into the gymnasium for our quarterly fellowship brunch. And most of us are just excited to go eat because we're carnal, okay? But, but what, what really will happen in there and what really can happen in there is that we can have Christian fellowship. We can share with each other. We can partner with each other because we are profoundly connected to each other and all of us are profoundly connected to the Lord Jesus. That's why we can have fellowship. That's why we can share even in suffering. Here's the point of this paragraph, verses 3 through 7. Jesus suffered and his followers will suffer. Paul has suffered. In fact, he's going to tell us a little bit more about that in just a minute. Paul has suffered, and the Corinthians will suffer. But our God is the God of all comfort. And He will give the encouragement, the spiritual strength that is necessary to endure these trials. And that comfort comes to us through the suffering of Jesus Christ. And the comfort that we receive, this is important, the comfort that we receive, like the gospel, which we have also received, is not supposed to terminate with us. You have received comfort from God in your trial? Great! He's promised He will do that. How many of you in here this morning have experienced the comfort of God in trial? Raise your hand. Look around. That comfort is not supposed to dead end with you. We are to pass on that comfort as we do the gospel to others. And don't miss verse 5. We share in this comfort abundantly. It's the word for overflowing. More than we need. No matter how abundantly our suffering, our comfort is more. This is our unshaken hope. Let's move on thirdly this morning to a resurrection hope. Verses 8 through 10. As is often the case in Paul's letters, he illustrates this theological point that he's made by using an example. Now, this is a little different because in most of Paul's letters, he'll start with a, you know, hey, it's me, Paul. I'm writing to you. Grace and peace. And then he usually goes into a thanksgiving. I thank God for you because you do this and this and this and this. And I'm praying for you. That's kind of how he starts his letters. Second Corinthians is a little different. He's, he does the, hey, I'm Paul, the apostle. And I'm writing to you again, Corinth. And grace and peace. And let me talk to you about suffering. It's a little different. And he's not talking about thanksgiving for the Corinthians here. He's, he's thanking God. Blessed be God. For the suffering that he has endured. And he's going to tell us a little bit more about it right now. He gives a recent personal experience in verses 8 through 11. 
he refers to his trials in Asia, which is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, where the city of Ephesus was located. He gives this example to make the point that not only does God promise to deliver his people in their afflictions, but God has the power to do what he promises. Look at verses 8 through 11 again. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers. He's used that expression before, hasn't he? We do not want you to be unaware, ignorant brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him, we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Whatever it was that Paul experienced in Asia Minor, and we don't know what it was. There's some speculation. We know there's some things that happened in Ephesus. One of the things that happened in Ephesus is Paul healed a demon-possessed girl. Do you remember that? And her owners weren't too happy about that. And they chased Paul and his comrades into the arena at Ephesus, which is a massive arena. Uh, you guys were just there, weren't you? Gorleys, you guys were just over there. Or no, somebody was just over there. Ephesus, were you guys in Ephesus? Yeah. And there's a massive theater there. It's a massive, it holds, I don't remember how many holds, like 25,000 people back in the day, something like that. And the Bible says for hours upon hours, the people gathered there and they chanted, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And, and Paul and his, and his, his, his friends there are, are basically standing on trial. That could have been what, what Paul's referring to here. We don't know exactly. But Paul says, look at verse 8 again. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You could restate that sentence accurately like this. We were indescribably beyond the limits of our power brought down into the depths. The picture is of a ship being weighed down like as by ballast or, or being crushed by the incredible pressure that builds up in the depths of the sea. It reminded me of, uh, of that, that uh, submarine that was lost, you remember, in its journey to the Titanic back in June, how for whatever reason the malfunctions on that sub, but it was at a depth in the ocean where the pressure that was crushing in on it was so great that whenever the malfunction happened, it the, the sub was just crushed. It imploded, and all life was lost instantly in a moment. Paul says, this is how we felt. The pressure was so great, it was crushing us, and I thought I was going to die. Incredible pressure. Paul wondered how he was going to live through it. Look what he says in verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received 
the sentence of death, the way that the Greek reads here is that it does not suggest, as one author writes, that Paul simply felt that they had received a sentence of death, but that they had, as far as they were concerned, received a death sentence, judgment had been passed, and the executioner's sword was raised. It's like they're waiting to die. But even having resigned himself to the fact that he was going to die, Paul had hope. Why? Because he knew, as he says here, that God has raised the dead. And that's the hope that we need, right? Paul had seen with his own eyes the risen Christ. He knew Jesus was alive. He knew God could raise the dead. And that reality caused Paul, both in verse 9, to rely on God, and in verse 10, to set his hope on God. Because God raised the dead. You know, we go through all kinds of trials in this life, all kinds of ups and downs, some more severe than others. We've all experienced them. Most of those we recover from. At some point, life gets back to normal, or at least some kind of normal. But all of us die. Unless we go up in the rapture. All of us die. All of us come to something we can't escape. And Paul wants to be sure that we know that even in that moment, the inescapable trial of death, Christians have hope because God raises the dead. That's the hope we need. That's the hope that is above all other hopes. And it caused Paul in that moment where he felt like he was ready to die to rely on God and set his hope on God. What does such a resurrection hope look like? Look at verse 10. God has delivered us and he will deliver us again. Does that sound like hope to you? What's Paul referring to here? What's the deliverance? Salvation? Daily trials? Persecution? I think it's all of the above. Because of God's mercies, back in verse 3, He's the God of mercy. Because of His great power, verse 9, He can raise the dead. He will deliver us from all kinds of things in this life. And ultimately, even from death itself. He has shown Himself to be faithful to his people, delivering overflowing comfort through the suffering of his own son. Finally, Paul's example turns into an appeal in verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Again, Paul's 
going a little off script here. Usually he's giving thanks for the Corinthians, but here he says, no, pray for us so that people will give thanks for us. If God could rescue Paul from that kind of deadly peril in Ephesus, whatever it was, then certainly God could deliver him from the cruelty that he's experiencing in Corinth. Why should the Corinthians pray for Paul? Because through these prayers, God will deliver them from their present difficulties. And then, having been delivered, they can offer prayers of thanksgiving for all the benefits that they have received. We talked about this a few weeks ago when Andy Nazelli was here. If God's in control of everything, why do we pray? We pray because God has ordained that through our prayers, He works. And if you don't pray, the work won't get accomplished. God's designed it that way. The prayers bring deliverance. They bring help. And that results in thanksgiving. I'll ask the praise team to come back to the front. We'll get ready for our final songs. And I'll ask the leadership team to come prepare for the Lord's table. As these people are moving, let me just wrap this up with a few thoughts of application. So stay with me here for just a couple minutes. What do we take away from us or away with us from this particular passage this morning? One obvious thing, I think, and first, is God made you a saint, so live like it. Examine your life. Pursue holiness with a daily dying to our flesh and practicing the spiritual disciplines that we need to practice. God made you a saint. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. 1 John 2, 19. Don't live like the world Live like your Father. Live holy lives. Live like you're a saint because you are. Second, because the world in which we live is fallen, suffering is going to be a fact of life. And even though he is an apostle, Paul suffers here even to the point of death. And he knows That comes with the territory. And here's the truth. God never promised us a way out of suffering until heaven. But he always promises us a way through suffering. God promises to be with us in the middle of our suffering. And he promises he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. His grace is sufficient His comfort is overflowing. He is enough. Believe that. Third, all suffering has a purpose. Although God doesn't choose to tell us why we go through difficult times and trials, He does promise to comfort us and encourage us in the trials. And often that happens through the ministry of other people. Trials not only drive us to seek the mercy and grace of God, trials force us to swallow our pride and seek the help of others. And as we share 
in the sufferings of others, as we fellowship, as we partner in the sufferings of others, we not only help alleviate people's suffering, but together we're actually sharing, partnering, fellowshipping in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Fourth, what experiences has the Lord delivered you through that you should be using to deliver comfort to someone else today? Who are the people in this body who need your comfort right now? Do you know? What will you do to get that comfort to them this week? And what will try to keep you from doing that? Think about that question. Think about it as we go into the gym today. Fifth, uh, and of course you can come up with many other applications, prayer is essential. These trials reveal what we oftentimes fear the most as humans, that we're weak and that we're not in control. And when Paul faces trials that overwhelm his life, he calls Christians to pray for him. Do you have a regular habit of praying for your brothers and sisters? Let's take a moment and do that right now. Would you just turn to wherever you are, whoever you are next to, and would you just take a a minute or two and pray for each other? Just right here, right now. Let's just take a moment. If you're comfortable doing that, just pray for each other right now. Let's take a moment. Amen. You know, you can do that anytime you want. And I hope you will. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows what affliction is. He's called the man of sorrows for a reason. As he has suffered and died for our sins, his sacrificial death was followed by his glorious resurrection. And because we know the suffering of Jesus ended in triumph, so too will ours. And that's why Paul exhorts the Corinthians, as much as he exhorts us, on him, Jesus, we must set our hope. Why? Because he's delivered us. And he will deliver us again.